Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is the progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to Politics Done Right on KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, your community radio station. We have a great program in store for you today. Austin, Texas environmentalist Danny Fetonte is relentless to protect community hurt by a coal-burning power plant, ash, and more. We have Chuck Todd. He challenges Senator Roger Wicker on Republican policy failures, including a tax cut that did not work while GOP opposes the infrastructure bill. And then we close with Democratic National Committee member Christopher Reeves discusses the failed red states and how to maintain Democratic House control. I want to announce a benefit fundraiser named Lydia's Heart. She's a woman who, like many, uh, our healthcare system has failed. If you can be so kind to visit her fundraiser at the Daichi Shotoka, located at 2320 Texas Parkway, Missouri City, there will be many of her items for sale, clothing, shoes, household items, and many more. That will be April 10th at 7 a.m. through 6 p.m. Again, that is April 10th at 7 a.m. through 6 p.m. Again, that location is 2320 Texas Parkway, Missouri City, uh, for Lydia's Heart. Folks, before we get started, please remember to keep your community radio station, KPFT, in your minds. Talk about it. Tell our friends to tune into 90.1 FM Houston or listen to kpft.org. Listen on kpft.org. Likewise, keep our 100,000-watt station that covers the entire Southeast Texas on air by donating what you can afford at our website, kpft.org. Just click that Donate button, and please do so in the name of Politics Done Right. Lastly, remember, you can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash Right. Or on YouTube Live at politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is Egberto Willis. At Egberto Willis. Spell E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. We are here with Danny Fetante, who is a chair of the Fayette 350 Committee, an environmental group. They are in the process of pressing Austin and other areas to put a coal power plant on ice because it is, put it bluntly, killing people. Anyhow, welcome to Politics Done Right, Danny. How are you doing today? Very good, uh, Egberto, and um, thank you for having me. Um, To start off, the Fayette Coal Power Plant. It's located in LaGrange, Texas. It's jointly owned by the Lower Colorado River Authority and the city of Austin. 
and it produces something called coal ash, which is when you burn coal uh, to move the generators, uh, it produces coal ash every single day. And that coal ash is made up of toxins, uh, mercury, lead, arsenic, and uh, chromium. The way they dispose of that chromium is they have been digging 48 foot deep pits and piling it in there. Uh, it used to be 44 foot pits, but they got a permit to go down to 48. They thinly lined it with clay, which um, either uh, contracts or expands depending on the level of moisture in the ground and then cracks develop and the poisons leach down into the water table. So what is going on uh, in the, the groundwater, which people are drinking, is they're taking in this toxins. So LaGrange has a block where every single house has somebody with cancer on it. Um, the lead that is being absorbed uh, by people is absorbed four times faster by kids than by adults. And it's lead is particularly dangerous to kids because it uh, uh, retards the development of kids, both physically and mentally. And so it's holding, holding people back and it's very hard to detect. Um, so when a kid when you're looking for lead poisoning, um, none of the poison shows up in the bloodstream where you take the blood for the first four years. It has to build up a certain level of toxicity. But the whole period that you're, during that four years, it's doing damage to your body. Um, so the problem that we have is the LCRA board is all appointed by uh, Governor Abbott. Um, it used to be when we started the work, some of them were appointed by Governor Perry. Um, and they have, um, we've been act actively working on this for about five years, testified at LCRA boards, testified at Austin City Council meetings and committees. And um, it's not taken seriously by any of them. They look at it as a cost of doing business, that you do business. Um, the people who handle the coal ash at the plant uh, are not given protective gear. Uh, so there's uh, what they found is just even handling this stuff in North Carolina and Tennessee, there, the the environmental movement is advocating that people wear um, hazmat uniforms, which are uniforms that protect the people. None of that's going on here at this Fayette plant. Now, these, um, these, these, this ash, a lot of people don't realize, the ash has a whole lot of stuff, heavy metals in there. It has mercury. It right. has quite a few others in there that actually can get into your body. And right. mercury, for one, is a neural, I think, uh, affects your nerves and some other, other parts. So, I mean, this is really serious stuff. It's, it's extremely serious. And when we've tried to deal with people, uh, there's a lack 
of urgency on most people's part, a total lack of urgency. Uh, we've gone around the block with Austin Energy on this um, on these questions, and they've come up with one excuse after another. They came up with excuse that the water table was being monitored by um, the Environmental Integrity Project. Well, if you go and check on the Environmental Integrity Project, you find that the. Uh, they are monitoring it and they're finding that there's all this toxic material in the water. They leave that out in their written response. They say they're being monitored, but they don't say what the monitors are finding. Um, what we found was in every county in Texas, the, there's a division of the health department that has a group that goes out and tests for lead because it's so dangerous. Uh, once a year in every county, they test the water. And um, about three or four years ago, uh, we don't know this for a fact, but we're assuming it was Abbott, something came down that said that the nine LCRA counties would no longer be tested by the state health department for lead, that LCRA would do that themselves. It's sort of like Boeing inspecting their own planes. Right. Um, and uh, one of the they were the workers that were told not to do any testing in these counties, which Fayette County and Colorado County and Bastrop County were included. Um, they asked the higher ups, why can't we do the test? They said, well, there's a lot of sensitivity going on. And if people find any lead in their water, they get very upset. That's so they should. Gonna, we're not going to test for lead anymore. And their solution was just not to test for lead. Does that sound familiar? Yes. yes. Does that sound familiar with our our current uh, epidemic or pandemic? Yeah. If if you don't like the epidemic, just don't test for it. Yeah. It it is ridiculous. Now look, uh, let's let's get serious here. The way that I read the the website and the way they are disposing of this ash is they put a layer of clay, then they put. Uh, the ash on. My question to you, if, if I remember my physics class, my physics and materials class correctly, right. I don't think that uh, clay is going to filter mercury molecules from getting into the water table. And if I understand the maps that I see correctly, it seems to me like we could get seepage into the Austin aquifer, which is the Edwards aquifer, and several of these other aquifers in the vicinity. And given that there is some connectivity with all these different aquifers, eventually this one plant can throw a whole lot of crap in a whole lot of areas within this aquifer as that stuff migrates. Am I correct? Uh, mostly you are. Um, the Austin aquifer is separated between the, the, the Fayette by two different um, Hill ranges. Layers. Yeah, ranges of rock. Now, right. the only thing that is going on, though, is there's been so much fracking where there's drills down into these, these rock formations, there's cracks developing. And what uh, we don't have proof of it, what we suspect is that water is migrating from one water table to the other. Uh, but at this point, the city of Austin, which owns uh, part of the plant 
is relatively protected. Austin is has many different economies, but it's generally much better off economically than the counties that are directly affected like uh, Fayette County, Colorado County, Caldwell County. Um, also, also the Austin County is, uh, Travis County where Austin is, is much whiter than the other counties. Right. So um, there doesn't seem to be a, an urgency if people, more people who work for a living get the poison as long as Austin is protected. It, it's um, interesting, uh, Danny, because what it also says is uh, when, when we talk about monitoring these different um, uh, aquifers, et cetera, uh, what we're also not saying is if we're monitoring and we found it has lead or mercury or whatever, by then it's too late. It's in the right. aquifer. That's exactly right. The reality should be there should be experimentations going on to see if our level of mitigation prevents flow of mercury in there and i think what they're going to find is no it doesn't do that and therefore we have to find if we're going to keep burning that coal we have to find some way of not having all those uh heavy metals leaching themselves into the table right right the the obama administration the environmental protection agency under obama was so concerned they were citing this plant again and again for the bad disposals of the coal ash, and they started fining them. Um, the The heaviest fines were done about four or five months before Trump took office. When Trump took office, he negated all the fines and wiped out all the citations. Um, so, if you go in, and I did an open request, open records request to LCRA asking for all copies of all the citations, they said, we don't have any. We're trying to meet with, uh, right now, with Congress folks to ask them to put pressure on EPA to go back into this plant. But at this point, it's not on the horizon because there's no record of all of the violations that they've had. Well, Danny, there's no, there, are no rec there are no open records. Shouldn't there be a database of everything that was thrown out as well? Or are you trying to tell me they killed it all? Uh, we can't find it. The Trump administration not only got rid of all of them in the last uh, three or four months of his administration, he also put together a procedure which allows Texas to handle all their environmental issues themselves. So the, the Biden administration has to change that before they can even try to regulate the environment here. The whole problem of dealing with it by just getting the so-called officials to start to deal with it is very, very difficult. What we've done is we're doing what's called a email storm towards the city council. We've met with um, four of the city council people directly, uh, individually, um, and we've met with the staff of three others to try to go through this and asking them to start taking serious issues. What we've been faced with, um, with actually a couple of exceptions, is um, they've quoted us things from Austin Energy's lawyers that say that there's legal restrictions on how Austin can play. Evidently, the, the legal department of Austin Energy 
which handles all of their energy questions. Um, signed all these agreements with LCRA, which gives LCRA total executive power to make all decisions. So they're saying it's not in our hands, even though we own 50% of all of the property where the coal ash, coal ash is stored and 30% ownership of the turbines. They say we don't have any say on it, which um, in the last couple of meetings with city council individuals, we said, this is not gonna be handled through a lawsuit. This has to be handled politically where um, the city council members who know what's right and know what's wrong stand up and, and raise it. This has, we have to cause a political stink that says that kids in central Texas should not be being poisoned so that we can be comfortable. Now, many times what, what they take advantage of is the, the naivete of the people in a particular area. Now, uh, do these people, uh, are you, uh, your organization engaging those people to let them know, well, the reason this entire street, every home has cancer in this home is likely because of this. Do you guys have an information campaign going through these areas so that these people know that the causality of what's going on with them at all? Yes and no. Mm -hmm. We met with people in that community who are very reluctant to trust Austin environmentalists. Right. And the reason is 5,000 of them got involved about six years ago with another environmental group. And they did all sorts of stuff. And then the environmental group signed a agreement with the city of Austin officials and basically walked away from the campaign without ever consulting with the people in Fayette County, without ever demanding cleanup of the coal ash. They got a commitment that at some point people would try to uh, close uh, the two halves of the turbines, but nothing on the cleanup. And it was there was very active people in that community who were standing up. There were small business people who have drilling operations for water. There were small business people who had um, pecan tree uh, forests. There was ranchers. All sorts of people got involved in this. Um, a number of years back, a bunch of the people from Fayette County who couldn't, their, uh, one gentleman used to sell their uh, pecans for $400,000 a year. And after all of this, the seepage got involved, he didn't have, he couldn't produce any pecans. So they went and bought pecans at the HEB and then made pecan pies and delivered them to the city of Austin to tell them what was going on. So there is some tension. We have uh, good contacts with a number of people uh, in Fayette County. The plant has ex the plant management has exerted a tremendous amount of pressure on the local government officials saying that this is the, the it is the largest employer in Fayette County. It's a, as How many people does it employ? 165. Okay. And, um, and in Fayette County, that's a lot. Um, and so they, they've, they've tried to say that the Austin environmentalists are 
um, trying to jeopardize people's jobs. So our three-part program that we're doing is one, the first thing is to begin the cleanup and stop more poisoning. So take all of the coal ash, put it into coal bins, whether it's the coal ash that is produced each day or the coal ash that is buried. Um, that process, if anything, will create more jobs, the cleanup. Right. Um, the second thing is to begin the process of uh, developing a solar park, a solar farm. There's 6,000 acres there, and you could be able to uh, develop solar power and gradually increase the solar and decrease the amount of carbon. Right. Um, uh, electricity. It's sold for the same amount of uh, money. Right. The solar, the the plant generates $30 million a year for the city of Austin, which is we've run into as one of the factors of them being uncomfortable and dealing with it because the city of Austin's budget is about a little bit over a billion dollars. We, ha we have developed uh, a committee in Bastrop County, which is a county next to it, who um, did not, was not involved with getting betrayed by another organization uh, and we have contacts in about five of the LCRA counties which we've been doing some work on. The problem that they're facing is if the city of Austin which makes up the majority of the people in LCRA are not, is not raising any cane then it's hard for us to excite local politicians in these smaller counties exactly. that they think they can do some stuff. So we're really putting pressure on the city council. All of the people who work there that are displaced are given jobs in either the city of Austin or other LCRA facilities. So there, no. is, there is electricians and all sorts of skilled workers that could move in over a period of time into the good paying jobs in those two uh, facilities. As I just, uh, as you just explained, Danny, you, uh, not only are you guys wanting to solve that issue with the mercury seeping into the water, the lead seeping into the water, but you've also given a practical solution that people are not just out of jobs or something happening. It's just right. people have to have the will to do it. Um, it seems to me like um, this is an issue with, with, the, with the hundreds of power, coal power plants that we have around the country with the ash that's left at these plants throughout the country, it seems like there's a hell of a big job to get done to make sure that all the, because we're leaving coal, that's, that's a certainty, we're leaving coal. But the, what we leave behind, abandoned generators, abandoned coal ash, all those things present a problem, a huge environmental problem. And unless we have environmentalists like yourself working on that, keeping the pressure on, given that you and I know that most of this, these ash plants, et cetera, or ash bins or whatever, are in areas of poor areas, et cetera, we are relegating all those people to illness, sickness, uh, poverty, uh, loss of mental capacity, and all those issues absent the kind of work that you're doing. So, I mean, the work that you're doing is very important, as we've always known, Danny. 
to close this, I want you to uh, tell me something that I should have asked you that I didn't, that you want our audience to know. Well, something on the last thing that you just said, there is some serious work being done by one of the University of North Carolina on dealing with the cleanup. And what they've developed is a way to take coal ash and put it in cement in a certain way where it stays. Okay. Um, and trying to find other ways to use it. But the amount of uh, coal ash in across the country is extremely high. The deposits of it are all over the place in Tennessee, in North Carolina, in West Virginia, where people de depended on coal. The other thing is that solar is cheaper to produce electricity with solar than coal. So there's the humanitarian factor and that really should be the primary thing. Uh, but there's also economic factors working against these coal plants. And I think that one of the things that has bothered us a lot is the city council in Austin has declared a climate emergency and then did nothing on this, did absolutely nothing. And right. they so they made speeches that they were for the environment and supporting the, the working around climate change. And then it's sort of like a proposal or a proposition is gonna solve a kid who's been drinking lead-laced water. And it that the the environmental community in Austin really has to step up and push against the city of Austin and the city of Austin, there's a couple of city council uh, members there who have actually started to try to figure out a way to work with us on this. Now, Danny, this is a this is not only an Austin problem. This is a problem that can be replicated hundreds of times throughout the entire country. So yes. first of all, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for working with 350, which means you have national reach, uh, which is very important in this case. So um, again, uh, Danny Fetante, what I call much more than an environmentalist, former union guy, and everything else. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Thank you, Egberto. Let's just give some kudos to where it's due. Chuck Todd finally challenged Republican policies with a Republican senator. And he, I mean, he didn't do it as tough as I would, but he did a good job. Check, uh, check this out and then let's take it on the other side. How can the president expect to have bipartisanship when his proposal is a repeal of one of our signature issues in 2017, where we cut the tax rate and made the United States finally more competitive when it comes to the way we treat job creators? He reverses all that. And I'll tell you what, he says no one will pay extra taxes if they make less than $400,000 a year. That may be true. Under this tax increase bill, a lot of people making $100,000 and $50,000 that are going to lose their jobs because of the extra burden this plan would put on job creators. Well, look, I, what, what they're talking about, though, is finding a middle ground between where the corporate tax rate was in 2017 and what the corporate tax rate is today. From They would like to move it to 28%. This tax cut that you guys put through in 2017, there were various promises that were made that they would pay for themselves. Hasn't come close to that. That it was going to produce 4 or 5 or 6% growth. We didn't even get 3% growth. At one point, former President Trump said, this thing's going to pay off the debt like it's water. Well, as you know, the debt is way up. 
So you look at this tax cut proposal, most of the benefits seem to go to stockholders. Corporations didn't do what they were going to do, which is take this savings and invest. They instead did stock buyback. So wasn't this tax cut kind of an economic failure? No, it, it wasn't at all. And until the pandemic hit in March of 2020, the, the tax cuts were working. The fact that we had lowered the tax burden mm -hmm. on job creators, particularly small business, which is the great job engine in the United States of America, uh, was working fine. Now, some of these uh, predictions that you mentioned, uh, I never participated in that. I understand. How would you pay for infrastructure? Where would you get the money? Well, I, listen, I'm, I'm open to suggestion about that, but I have two bipartisan bills that I've introduced. I, uh, Senator Stabenow right. is, is on an advance. Right, I understand. I'm investing in municipal bill. bonds, right? So and, basically and, debt uh, financing. I'm absolutely up to looking at ways that, for example, mm -hmm. use uh, private uh, public partnerships and things of that nature. But the very worst way to finance this is to put a major tax burden on small businesses that create the jobs in the United States of America. You know, let's not conflate. Should the big businesses that benefit from smooth running roads and and really good ports and airports that will improve delivery mechanisms. Should they contribute something to our infrastructure? You got a whole bunch of companies that pay zip into the federal government coffers. I'm all for looking at, at ways that states like our neighboring state of Alabama, Tennessee, Arkansas, they've all found a way, fair way that the public will go for to pay for roads and bridges. But uh, when you talk about big businesses um, and, and you're saying we should raise their tax rate from 21% corporate rate to 28%, let me just tell you, that's going to cut job creation in the United States of America. And it's the mm -hmm. very reason we lowered those tax rates mm -hmm. uh, in 2017. It's a plan that worked. Right. And if the president wants a buy plan. How can he possibly um, try to get something passed right. that every single, that repeals a bill that every single Republican in the Senate voted for in 2017? Did you guys blow it? You had four years to do an infrastructure bill. You had the presidency, you had the Senate and the House for a bit. Did you blow it? No. As a matter of fact, we passed infrastructure bills on two occasions. But yes, I, I I would love to have passed a larger um, infrastructure bill, and I certainly hope we can do that, but I don't want to do it by raising taxes and, right. and cutting jobs for Americans. Now, let me first get one thing out of the way. A dollar knows from whence it is spent. In other words, if a corporation spent a dollar to hire somebody or buy something, or the government spends a dollar to buy something, hire somebody, or hire a company who hires somebody... The, 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 a dollar does not know from where it is spent. So the lie that Republicans always want to give tax cuts to companies so that they can decide uh, and they can spend the money somehow more efficiently to create jobs, it's a lie that needs to be dispelled. Now, Chuck Todd did something there. I don't even know if he knew he did it. But when he said, listen, uh, your tax cut failed. You said it was going to reduce the deficit. It did not. You said it was going to create real a whole bunch of jobs. It did not. You said it was going to, uh, their, the, the companies would use this tax cut to invest. It did not. They did not do it. And therefore, as such, why not take that money back that didn't get spent the way corporations made you believe, the way uh, the Republicans told you the corporations were going to spend it to invest in America. Why not take that money back and let's make sure and really 
invest in America. And when they talk about jobs being lost, it's a lie. Remember, infrastructure bill means that you are going to be creating more jobs to build roads, to be, to take care of, uh, of the elderly. To, there's a whole lot of stuff in that infrastructure bill to create more jobs and jobs within the fifty dollars and $100,000 range that he claims that that Senator Wicker claim would be lost. So uh, remember the realities. Remember the truth. That uh, it's been said, uh, proven by Wall Street firms, of course. We don't like them, but they, they have good data that said 2.3 million jobs created in two years by this particular infrastructure bill. And how do, given that Republicans don't like to tax, they, when asked, how are you going to pay for this? Oh, we are going to set create bonds. Think about it. Bonds is just another form of saying debt. They, in other words, they want to take money from other people, borrow money from whoever can, they can borrow from, generally wealthy people, to build roads that the wealthy people's corporations are going to use, smooth roads for those corporations to use, and then pay those corporations interest the debt you borrowed to make roads good for them. It is always every transaction Republicans want to create must create a net positive gain to the wealthy and to the corporations. Understand the psychology of how these people operate. It is essential that we do. This infrastructure bill, first of all, is not as big as it should be. The tax increase on corporations is not as big as it should be. The reality is if you give monies to the people who are more likely to spend it, you get a bigger economy. What they don't want, they don't want a very vibrant economy where the workers have power to demand higher salaries. So if they keep the work, the workforce fairly scared, wanting needing and scared that they may lose their jobs, then they have price and power. But if we have a lot of jobs available for people to do, the workers have price and power. And that is what business does not want. That is who Republicans are protecting. They are not protecting their constituents. They are protecting only the wealthy and the corporations. Remember that. And any Democrat not supporting these types of bills, that is their master as well. We have a special guest, as usual, Christopher Reeves, community organizer at Daily Coast and DNC committee man from Kansas. Look, um, when I hear the word Kansas, I always think about that book. You guys know what I'm talking about. And you know what? We're going to kind of discuss some of that as well. Welcome to Politics Unright. Christopher Reeves, how are you doing today? I am doing great, Egberto. Glad to be here. Well, look, it's a pleasure having you. I think we've spoke a while back at uh, Netroots a few years ago. We haven't had one in a long time. I don't know if we're going to have one this year or not. Do you know what's the rumor mill about this year's Netroots? Well, I know everybody's trying to see what's possible. And there's one thing that is fantastic, and that is the, the way the Biden administration is rolling out the vaccine. So fingers crossed it may actually be possible. Do you know if, if, it, if it turns out to be possible, where would it be? I don't know that. I have absolutely <laughs> no idea of that. And I don't know if they would know right now yet. But um, I, I think right now it's probably more likely it's virtual. But I, I think that there's ground room for that to change. So we'll yeah. see. 
we need I, I can't wait for us to get back together and get into all those rooms and those symposiums and those great panels that we have really miss that but you wrote a piece and uh, when you wrote that piece I kind of contacted you right away because it was it is right on point we just got uh, the uh, American Rescue Plan passed which mm-hmm. is a you know it's more than a rescue plan it's a paradigm shift if we make a lot of its tenants permanent and uh, the reason I'm bringing that up is you wrote a piece at Daily Coast that titled Kansas Republicans spent a decade attacking social assistance. Now they are shocked at the result. And the interesting thing about this, uh, Christopher, is that this is not only a Kansas story. Yeah. This is really a red state story. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the article, the genesis of the article? Let's get into the, Let's really get into that. So what had happened was, not only in Kansas, but in a lot of states, you were seeing a lot of difficulty dismissing, uh, uh, dispersing uh, funds for unemployment, access to health care, all of these things were really in a flux that the people, that the general populace didn't have a way to participate. And Republicans kept wringing their hands and going, oh, see, this is the federal government failure. This is, you know already Biden has failed. And I thought most of this went on last year when Trump was in office. That's point number one. And point number two, what this really is, is it's the culmination of the last six years of stripping all of the money out of these programs in these red states. So states like Kansas, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, all of these states, Missouri, Uh, have just gutted their internal um, process to handle everything from foster care to unemployment. And then when they were faced with a pandemic, they were not in any way prepared to uh, make that happen. So even if they had some Democratic leadership, we're very fortunate here in Kansas to have a Democratic governor, the system was so gamed against the working class that it was really hard to suddenly get the help out there. You know, it was a few years ago in Kansas, they passed all this legislation that went around the country because Alec was behind it that said, uh, if you're on an unemployment, you can't spend any unemployment money on stakes. And there was a debate as to whether or not minute stakes qualified or, or cube stakes or, you know, what qualified that they weren't allowed to use their their WIC and, and, and all these public assets, assets money uh, on, um, which was ridiculous. You know, you can't go and use your TANF funds on a uh, luxury cruise, which nobody was doing, but let's pass legislation. And they also moved to change to limit how long you could receive it. And in the states that did that, they limited it all the way down to 10 to 13 weeks. Well, in a pandemic that lasts an entire year, that was not feasible. That was not something that could change. And so you ended up with Republican legislatures who weren't willing to budge, who were complaining about all the people in their districts that were struggling but they were struggling because of legislation that those Republican legislators had shoved down the state's throats for the last 
five years while all the rest of us were going, hey, this is a bad idea. In the long term, this is a bad idea. They didn't want to hear it now. Now they're experiencing what it is. And rather than own up to the fact that, well, we set this ball in motion, they're wanting to point the fingers at everyone else because it's easier to point the fingers than to say, well, we should have done something about this when, when we had the opportunity. We just didn't want to. Now, you have a special governor, or you had a special governor before we got this Democratic governor. His name was Brown Back, and he faced a very tough competitor, a Democratic competitor before this, this last one. And we all thought the Democratic competitor was going to win because, as it turns out, uh, your governor then, Brownback, decimated the school system. The teachers were against him. Many Republicans came out against him because if you want the prototypical supply-side type governor, if you want the prototypical governor who believes in uh, starving the government, he was the one. And when a comparison was made with uh, just gutting the government by reducing taxes compared to a state like California who raised taxes to get their budget under control, we saw a huge contrast. Number one, how could he have survived? And number two, much of his privatization, as you mentioned in your article as well, went to grifting. So talk a little bit about that, that the Republicans in general, when they're talking about privatization, it's nothing more than grifting. So um, Kansas in 2014, uh, Brownback faced a really tough challenge by Paul Davis. And Paul Davis was a really good candidate. Kansas is normally a state that tilts Republican by default. So I know our current governor, Governor Kelly, is going to have a very tough race in 2022. Um, uh, but that having been said, um, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of things that go into that. One of the things that enabled people like Brownback is they never came out and talked about here is the end result. They never once said, here's what's going to happen down the road. They only talked about here's the immediate result. And so Brownback would say, hey, immediately you're going to get 50 bucks back in your Kansas tax return, which is nothing. Right. People said, well, that must be slimming down the government. Christopher, as a member of the DNC, it turns out that um, the concern right now is that given what we've done in 2020, the Republican legislatures are a majority. How does that, how do you expect that to pan out with respect to how House districts are drawn and whether Democrats can retain control of the House. So one of the issues that has happened is um, Republicans engage at the state house level in a lot of voter suppression. We always think about voter suppression as preventing people from going to the polls. But another level of voter suppression is drawing districts to either reduce um, effort, uh, reduce uh, turnout, and dilute the vote. So I want to kind of explain that. The first is um, to reduce effort and reduce turnout. If you draw maps to where a district is guaranteed, 100% guaranteed Democratic, because you've drawn it such that it's uh, an all-Black district or whatever, there's just never a challenge. 
Um, and there are some districts in the country where there's no choice, but in a lot of places, they'll do that to pack all the, the Democrats in. What happens is, is turnout drops because people feel confident that they will have their state legislators and their U.S. House of Representatives. So turnout in that district comes down. Even though Republican turnout in that district is exactly what it should be, Democrats aren't turning out at the level because they know that they'll win. What does that mean? It means in statewide races, you get killed. The other thing that Republicans look to do is to dilute votes. If they can't pack it in tightly, then they'll move communities into a large array of other communities in order to make sure the Democrats are spread out thin enough that they can still win. And what this does is, of course, allows them to unbalance state houses as well as the U.S. House of Representatives um, by drawing district lines for bold. The, the final thing that Republicans really do here that I don't think we talk enough about is that they put a lot of focus on winning the races at the state and county level. So once they have those in their hands, it's a lot easier to make just the raw machinery of how the election is going to work uh, more convenient or less convenient for the people involved. So as one of the big examples that happened a few years ago was in Dodge City, Kansas, which is a primarily Hispanic community, the polling center was moved outside of town uh, in a casino where a lot of people would have to drive and the hours went in such that a lot of the people who worked in the meat processing plant would have difficulty getting there. Um, That's a great way to make it difficult for some people to vote. Before that, they had put it uh, right next to a country club in the white area of town, which made many feel uncomfortable to go there because they were afraid people would call the cops on them. In places like St. Louis and Atlanta and Miami, um, there have been stories about polling places being put, early polling places being put in, in things like police stations or or <laughs> so that, that people would feel uncomfortable. You know, am I going to get asked questions that I don't, you know, you know, I have people always think that it's going to be someone with a major crime, but a lot of times it's someone who says, oh my God, I've got parking tickets, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm afraid to walk in there because they could, you know, they could throw something else on me. Um, and those are all voter suppression tactics that come by gaining control of the state legislature and then the county level officers. So uh, at the national level, I know we're really concerned about what do we do about these state legislatures? What do we do about more county officers? I think there's been a renewed focus on what do we actually start doing about district attorneys and state attorney generals uh, because we're, we're thinking more about the fact that these are races that we haven't really pursued as hard as we should. But we're learning as we see in New York, in Minnesota, that having a good attorney general can make a huge difference in the way people perceive the worthiness of the government that represents them. So. Now, again, I get all of that. Now, do you think that there is enough malfeasance that could occur to make it almost impossible for the Democrats to retain control? Um, 
Unfortunately, yes. Um, I think if HR1 does not pass, uh, Republicans are prepared to gerrymander enough districts um, that they can dilute out some votes and they can make it very, very difficult to impossible for us to hold the U.S. House. Um, that would be um, a real disservice to the American public, but it's one of the problems that we have right now is that um, we have too many Republican legislatures. And it's one of the real reasons why we need HR1. HR1 is not in any way about ending up with a Democratic House or a Democratic whatever. HR1 is about saying, let's get people in both parties, Republicans and Democrats, in a bipartisan group who are not elected officials. Because remember this, elected officials will want to draw lines however they want to to make sure they stay in office. That's right. going to be one of their goals, whether they're Republicans or Democrats. But gets an independent group to look at the map and draw it uh, just based on math, on, on, you know, to make these maps fair. There are a lot of groups all over the country who submit maps. Let's do that. And then we'll take the results. And however it works out, we're prepared to campaign on those. But I think if you look at it like a Republican legislature is prepared to draw maps for the sole reason of uh, making sure that they get the most Republican seats or Democratic maps are drawn to do the same, well, neither of those are a good method to represent democracy. Now, I, I want to circle back now to the American Rescue Plan. Don't you think whether, don't you think we need to be selling the American Rescue Plan as not necessarily a Democratic plan, but an American plan in such a manner that we're not asking Republicans this, this cycle in 2022 not to be Republicans. We're asking them to vote their interests. And how do we get there? Because I am of the belief that we can get Republicans not necessarily to become Democrats, but to realize that, well, if we go ahead and elect this Republican House, the benefits that came with the child care and all these other issues are likely to go away. The benefits that go to the average person, which the average person more so is Republican when you talk about income levels, et cetera. Do you think that for once we can have an election where people will uh, vote their interest and we'll have Democrats in such a manner campaigning for the jugular as opposed to trying to triangulate not to offend some? I, I think that's the most important part. Don't triangulate not to offend. We spend too much time not blowing our own horn about our successes. And I think one of the things is, is we need to point out, this is not a democratic plan. This is an American plan. You know, this is the American rescue plan. Right. This isn't about bailing out banks. This isn't about bailing out big companies. This is about making sure you have a job, making sure you have childcare, making sure shots go in people's arms, making sure that schools have the proper ventilation systems and everything they need to reopen and be safer, to make sure your city government, your state government can still run and still hire employees. These are big things that almost everybody is agreed on. In fact, in polling, we're seeing polling results that tells us 
80% of United States citizens, that's Republicans, Democrats, and independents are in favor of this. So there is large bipartisan support of this nationwide, whereas all the Republicans in Washington, D.C. can be no votes. They're people at home who are waiting on a check to come to them because last year was destructive to them, and it was destructive because of Trump. You know, I see too many people who say, well, we should give Trump credit for this, Trump credit for this. No. There are 560,000 people dead. Dead, yes. That's the credit he deserves. Families that were torn apart. So the one thing that I think Democrats need to do is start saying, you know, we are the party of justice. We are the party that understands that giving you that check was the least the government could do. I mean, the bare minimum we could do and making sure that we help you get a vaccine. Damn it. That's what the government is for. You know, we've done this before with polio. We, we, you rise to big occasions. And whenever I hear Republicans go, well, we want to do this and that. No, 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 no. This is where we as Democrats have to go out and start saying we are for the American people. And fine. If, When you vote for Republicans, what Republicans are wanting to tell you is all of this is too bad. The taxes, all these breaks should go to companies. In fact, we've had two Republican, one Republican governor and two senators say that, you know, states should return this money because they can't give tax breaks with it. Well, BS, the average person doesn't need a tax break. They need a school bus to show up at their door where they know the bus driver has been vaccinated and is going to be safe. You know, that's what they want. They don't need to know that Walmart got a tax break on buying a lot of property. That doesn't matter to them. They don't need to feel like their grocery store got a big tax break when their grocery store really wants people to come in back to the store and shop freely. So that's how you get the economy going. The economy getting going isn't by tax breaks. To get the economy going, you have to get people feeling comfortable about getting back out there and doing things. Exactly. Exactly. Now, uh, last question. I always ask this as my last question. What would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? I think the one question that nobody's talking about enough is what do Democrats do next and what, it, what constitutes success? Everyone looks at the first 100 days of a presidency as what can you get done. We've just crossed 50 days and Biden has got more done in those 50 days than Trump in four years. Right. But what I think happens next is we start talking about some of the things that Trump kept bringing up but never got around to. I think that there is a democratic infrastructure plan coming. I know that there's opportunities for us to talk about real innovation and real commitment for what America of the future is going to look like. And I think we have to start getting rid of the idea of making America great again and start saying, how great America is going to be and how we can make America great in the future. We're working towards that dream. That has to be 
what we're looking for, not looking back, looking forward. And I think that's the message that I hope we start selling. Christopher Reeds, community organizer for Daily Coast and DNC committee person from Kansas. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Absolutely. Thank you, Egberto. Again, please remember to keep your community radio station, KPFT, in your hands. Talk about it. Tell your friends to tune in to 90.1 FM Houston or listen to us on kpft.org. Keep us on air by donating what you can afford at our website, kpft.org. Once again, remember, you can get Politics Done Right uh, Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politicsdoneright or on YouTube Live at politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis, at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Again, you can listen to Politics Done Right five days a week, Monday through Fridays at 3 p.m., just where we told you. My name is Egberto Willies. This is Politics Done Right. And you know how I end this baby. I am what? Out! Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willies. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Right.